got the CWCCS podcast with Bible teaching from Pastor Al Pittman. Today, we begin to look back at Pastor Al's study in the book of Revelation. We've got a power-packed sampling of Pastor Al's Revelation series for you to listen to over the coming weeks. But before we get there, Pastor Al has written a new book that answers many questions people have at this time. It's titled, Revelation, Earth's Final Chapter. The last book of the Bible is sometimes the least read and often the most misunderstood. That's why Al Pittman has written a book from his teachings through Revelation. For those who read, those who hear, and those who keep the words of this prophecy, there's a blessing for you that you're hearing these words today. Revelation, Earth's Final Chapter by Al Pittman is the new book available for pre-order now. What would Jesus say about your church? What is unveiled in the book of Revelation? Why is the church missing for so many chapters? The church age has ended. The church age is an age of grace. Grace has ended. Now judgment has come. Review the book of Revelation chapter by chapter with Al Pittman in his new book. Pre-order now where you get books or go to cwccs.org. That's cwccs.org. Someone once said, you know, I wish God would speak to us as he did in days of old and all this, but God is speaking. But are we listening? Revelation. Earth's Final Chapter by Al Pittman. This new book by Pastor Al Pittman comes from his in-depth teaching series on the book of Revelation, a perfect read for times as these. Revelation, Earth's Final Chapter. Pre-order or go to cwccs.org. Now, here's today's message. Well, Revelation chapter 1. Let us ask God to bless his word. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you will bless your word. That it will go forth with power, clarity, that you would bring illumination and understanding. God, your word would accomplish your divine will and not return to you void. We commit this time to you. Grant us ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a lot of information that we're going to go over today. We're going to get through, Lord willing, Revelation chapter 1. And so I pray that God would indeed bless you through his word. Uh, If I could change the name of the book of Revelation, I would probably change it to spoiler alert. (laughs) Because regardless of what you're going through in your life, here's the deal. We win. Amen. Spoiler alert, we win. If you read the last chapter, regardless of where you are in this life, regardless of what you've gone through in this life, we win. Uh, the book of Revelation is, is a book that is, serves really as a capstone and, uh, and, and confidence to our faith as believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, the, but most importantly, it is the revelation. It is the revelation, singular, not plural, revelation of Jesus Christ, the glorification of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just a little bit about background on the book. The book was written, estimated to, be, to have been written around AD 95, AD 95, according to scholars. The word revelation is from the Greek word apocalypsis, and it means disclosure, appearing, or coming. Uh, it's where we get our word apocalypse. Uh, the author of the book, of course, is the Apostle John. John is, is exiled, as we will read here in a little bit, on the island of Patmos. He's exiled under the, uh, the reign of the Roman emperor uh, Domitian. Uh, Domitian uh, served uh, uh, the Roman Empire or reigned in the Roman Empire from A.D. 81 to around A.D. 96. 
So John here, we find him a castaway. He's cast away. He's, he's an old man now. He's at the end of his life and, and, and probably feeling like maybe he's useless to the kingdom of God. He's isolated from society. He's in relative obscurity. And yet he's on the verge of receiving the greatest revelation known to mankind. Isn't that just like God? Just when we've given up on ourselves, God has a greater revelation for us. God is not finished with you yet. Amen. And first Kings chapter 19, Elijah, the prophet is running from Jezebel. Elijah, the prophet, remember him called down fire from heaven. This mighty man of God is running from one wicked woman by the name of Jezebel, who's out to kill him because uh, Elijah had killed the prophets of Baal. And Elijah finds himself in this obscure place and he's frustrated and he's running for his life. And he says, it's enough. It's enough. I'm no better than my father's. You ever feel that way? I thought I was going to be better than my father, better than other people, but I'm no better than anybody else. It's enough. I wish I could just, just give up, just die. I wish I was never born. That's where Elijah was. At the end, seemed like at the end of his rope, in, the, in his place of obscurity, and yet he was on the threshold of his greatest ministry. Isn't that just like God in our lives? And we find John in the same situation, an old man who feel like he's washed up and, 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 and uh, uh, exiled to this island by himself. And yet he's going to receive one of the greatest revelations known to mankind. First John chapter three, the same John writes these words, probably around, according to scholars, around 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman Empire. But in 1 John chapter 3, John writes these words. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it's not yet been revealed. Not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I wonder, unbeknownst to to John, when he wrote those words, that he indeed would see Jesus as he is is glorified and we'll see that here in revelation chapter one we begin here at verse one the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants his servants the church the followers of christ things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads in those, verse 3, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Man, if it was near back then, how close are we today? To the coming of Jesus Christ. The second advent of Jesus Christ. He said shortly these things will come to pass. Shortly. The word shortly of course denoting a fixed position. A place. A time. A state. A brief space of time. In other words the Bible says in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. In Jesus first advent to the world. Jesus was born in the fullness of time. God had a set time for his son. God has a set time for these things also as we will see through the book of Revelation to come to pass. Now many times and and 
The Bible tells us that in the last days, and by the way, we are in the last days, that there will be scoffers who will come on the scene and, and, and mock the fact that Jesus said he would return. Second Peter, Peter says that in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. But just as they, 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 they're mocking today, they also mock during the days of Noah. And yet the Bible tells us that the rains did come and that those who mocked were uh, perished rather from the face of the earth. God is not a man that he should lie. And the things he has revealed in this book will surely come to pass. In 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9, Peter says, but, uh, he says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And if someone was asked, you know, the Lord, when he was going to come back, because Jesus doesn't know the Father knows, and Jesus is only the Father knows, and uh, the Father could have said, in three days. <laughs> three days for us would be 3,000 years. Who knows? We don't know the time or the hour. But the Bible says it's a short time looking from God's perspective. He could come at any moment. One day unto the Lord is the thousand, as a thousand years. It goes on to say in Second Peter chapter 3, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is long-suffering. Aren't you glad he's long-suffering? We serve a long-suffering, patient God. Hey, we wouldn't be here today if God wasn't long-suffering. Amen? Come on. But because of God's patience toward us, we are yet here. We're still here. I'm so glad God is long-suffering that he waited, that he didn't end the world, you know, some 40-some-odd years ago before I came to Jesus Christ. That he waited for me. Amen. God is long-suffering. Thank him for his mercy. But here's the problem. Many times people take God's patience as weakness. And they play with God. And they think, oh, I've got plenty of time. And we shake mankind, shake the fist at God and defy God. And we think, oh, I've got plenty of time. Things have gone on as they've always gone on. Jesus Christ is not coming back. But hey, here's the truth. He's coming. And a greater truth is you're going. Every gray hair says you're going. Every time you get out of bed and go, oh, something's saying you got some place to go. <laughs> you are going. Amen. He is coming. Soon, but you also going, amen. That's why Paul says in Second Corinthians six, he says, "Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation." Amen. Notice in verse three, John says, "There's a blessing in in this book." That word blessing, he said, "Blessed is he who reads this book." Here's the words, and who keep these things that are in this book. The word blessing from the Greek word mar. Makarios, and it means supremely blessed. For those who read, those who hear, and those who keep the words of this prophecy. There's a blessing for you that you are hearing these words today. That God has ordained for you, those who hear this word, who keep this word, those who read this word. Keep the word. That means to, to not lose sight of it. You know, of this prophecy. To not lose sight of our ultimate destiny as believers. Because when we lose sight of where we're going, the enemy can come in and begin to manipulate us through unbelief, doubt, and fear. But here's the deal. It, 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 it's, it's, it's important for us to remember that. Remember that it's not where you've been, but it's where you're going that really matters. 
Oh, pastor, I've done this and I've done that. Hey, it's not where you've been, but it's where you're going. That really matters. And the book of Revelation reminds us where we're headed. Amen. People wonder what is going on in the world today. Read the book of Revelation. Everything's being lined up. Yes, with China, with Russia, with Germany, with uh, the Middle East. All these things are being lined up according to prophetic scripture for the second return of Jesus Christ. If the devil wanted to fool all of us, it wouldn't be lining up, but it is. Why? Because God has ordained that it would come shortly. He has ordained this time. And God is not a man, amen, that he should lie. In verses 4 to 6, we read on through our text. It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn uh, from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This letter is for all believers, but in particular, those seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Seven is a significant number in the Hebrew culture. Hebrew uh, culture, it, it speaks of completion and or perfection. Uh, and, and some people have, have said that the, uh, uh, the seven churches in the book of uh, Revelation, and actually verses, uh, chapters of uh, uh, two to, and three, well, seven churches represent uh, different stages of the church uh, leading up to the time that when Jesus returns, and which I th- it's all speculation, and some people think that that's what the case is, but I, it's just speculation, because really, if that is the case, <laughs> we're in sad shape, because the last church is the church of Laodicea, which is the lukewarm church, which today... We see a lot of that within the church. Amen? So, so perhaps that's the case. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I think it's speculation. But, you know, uh, we do know that uh, God is still working in his church today. So we don't have to be lukewarm. In verse 4, uh, he says, him who is and who was and who, uh, who is to come. He's referring here, here to God. To God. Who was, who is, and who is to come. Uh, these, this same statement uh, Jesus declares about himself, as we'll see in verse 8, uh, in, in uh, chapter 1 here in the book of Revelation. And why not? Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. And there are those who say Jesus never said he was God. Jesus did. Amen. He said he was God. He says, I and my Father are one. There's much speculation also, before we move on in our text Much speculation about uh, the seven spirits in verse 4 who are before the throne of God. I believe these seven spirits, because I always use scripture to validate scripture, amen. And uh, I believe that these these seven spirits are actually angels. And as a proof text, we go to Revelation chapter 8 verse 2. And you read there where John writes, and I saw the seven angels who were, who are, where were they? They were standing before God. To them were given seven trumpets. And he gets into the, the, the trumpets and all of that. But, but I believe these are the angels that are standing before the very throne of God. Seven angels. Now in verse 5, it's interesting because there's so much packed 
in verses 5 and 6, actually, uh, that, that gives us assurance or confidence in regards to our salvation. Because there in verses, verse 5 and 6, uh, John talks about Christ's reputation in regards to our salvation, Christ's work, number two, in regards to our salvation, and our eternal status in regards to salvation. Let's unpack those uh, quickly here. Christ's reputation. Why do I say that? Well, verse 5, he says, in Jesus Christ, and from Jesus Christ, number one, the faithful witness. Christ is the faithful witness. Why is he the faithful witness? Because according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he was tempted as we were and yet without sin. Regardless of what the liberal theologians are lying about today, Jesus Christ was sinless. He had to be sinless, His, uh, he could, or he could not make atonement for our sins. He could not pay the full price for our sins. He was sinless. He was tempted as we were, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And then secondly, in regards to Christ's reputation, is he is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he has conquered the grave. A lot of people talk about being the Messiah and being a Savior, but Jesus is the only one who's come back from the dead who has, has, and has the authority to deliver us. In John chapter 14, verse 19, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Amen. Because he has conquered the grave itself. Amen. And yet though we die, yet we shall live, amen, through faith in him. And then he is the ruler. His other characteristic here, or reputation, I should say, is he is the ruler over kings. He is the ruler over kings. That's something we need to remember. Every four years I get up here and I have to remind you, every election, that Jesus is large and in charge. He is the ruler over kings and presidents or despots or whatever they might be. He is ruler over all. If you don't believe me, proof text, go back and read Psalm 2. The Bible says in Psalm 2, God says that those nations that collaborate together and come against his Christ. The Bible says that God looks at them and sits on his throne and he laughs at the efforts of mankind to defy him. Because God is ultimately in charge. Mankind acts out his, in, in wickedness and yet despite his wickedness, God says he's still in charge. His word will come to pass. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will remain forever. Amen. And so we find here, amen, we find here that Jesus Christ is the ruler over all kings. And I love it in John chapter 19. If you're taking notes, you got to write fast, amen. <laughs> but in John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus is in that illegal trial of Jesus Christ. He's standing before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate, thinking that he had the power to release Jesus, you know, was kind of questioning Jesus. And Jesus said, the only power you have... Is that which has been granted to you from heaven. Amen. Now you can't do, you think you're doing all of that, y'all that in a bag of chips. The only reason you can do what you're doing to me is because my father has allowed you to do it. Amen. He's the ruler over all kings. So Jesus, his reputation, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, the ruler over kings, gives us confidence in our salvation. And then secondly, the work of Christ gives us confidence in our salvation. John says here, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins. The motivation for the work, he loved us. Somebody said, God loves you, get over it. He loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Yes, even those who curse him, he loves them. 
God loved us. That was the motivation for the work of Christ on the cross was God's great love for us. And what was the purpose of the work of Christ on the cross? The purpose of that work was to wash us from our sins by his own blood. Amen. His own blood. This this statement gets lost on Western culture sometimes. We think, you know, in in the West, if you haven't read your Bible, people think, oh, Jesus was a nice man, a great man, and he died on a cross. He was sincere. He was sincere, but, you know, and all of that. And and wasn't it a wonderful story? He left us some wonderful sayings and stuff. Yes, and he had to die on the cross. There was no other way. He prayed in the garden, Father, if if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. There was no other way. Our atonement, our sins had to be paid for through the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ had to die, and that blood had to be pure. Amen. And so he had to go to the cross for us and die for our sins. He washed us and cleansed us with his own blood. Not only was he the lamb of God, he took his own blood, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, into the tabernacle in heaven and before God and presented his own blood for our atonement. And the father accepted his blood. And therefore, whoever put their faith in Christ can be freed and forgiven of their sins. And that's why he says that I am the way, I am the truth truth and I am the life and and nobody can come to the father but through me amen it's through his blood that we've been washed not some good work of our own our righteousness is but only a filthy rag in the sight of God we needed a savior to deliver us from our sins you can't do enough to, to have your sins taken away from the sight of God but all those who put their faith in him, their sins are forever washed away by his blood to never be remembered again in the memory of God. Isn't that glorious? We have confidence today because of the reputation of Christ. Amen. Give him praise and glory. Amen. Praise his name. Give him praise and glory over Creekside. Amen. Watching online. He's worthy. He's worthy. We have confidence in salvation because of his reputation. Confidence in salvation because of his work. Confidence in salvation because of our eternal status, lastly. Here in verse 6, John says, And he has made us kings and priests. Some of your translations might, re- write, might read, He has made us, uh, or made, instead of kings, says kingdom. But we are in the kingdom of God. Given the right, be called, the right to be called children of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, he called, made us kings and priests to his God and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are kings and priests. Isn't that a glorious thought? A glorious thought that, that, that we have been moved from ruin to royalty. Amen. We were once ruined, jacked up, man, separated from God, dead in our sins. But because of the blood of Jesus and our faith in what Christ has done for us, we've been moved from ruin to royalty. And then Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into, the, into the mar, his marvelous light. We are to proclaim, make a proclamation. Amen. We're not to be these quiet priests or quiet kings, but to proclaim what our Lord has done for us. Amen. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into his Marvelous light. Amen. So in those 
few couple of verses we find very great confidence for our salvation, our faith in Jesus. In verse 7, as we move on, he says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, every, and even they who pierced him, it says, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. The tribes of the earth, every nation will mourn when Christ comes, why, comes back. Why? Because Revelation 19 tells us he comes back to strike the nations, to judge the nations. And the people will mourn. And John says, well, so be it. Amen. The Bible says that every eye will see him. This is really important because uh, a lot of people, you know, we hear there's sightings of Jesus. You ever read about some of these articles, there's sightings of Jesus. You know, Jesus is working at 7-Eleven and, you know, Jesus is over here. The people have proclaimed to be Jesus. There's a guy who had a huge following, I believe, in some years ago in Florida that claimed to be Jesus, the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Uh, even a couple of years ago, we had a guy in a prayer room who, was, who thought he was Jesus and, and all of this. It just, and Jesus warned us about this. He, he knew that this was going to happen. In Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24, verses 26 to 27 and, and all, he, Jesus said that, uh, uh, that people will say, oh, he's going to be out in the desert. He's going to be over here. He says, don't believe him he says for as the lightning flashes from the east to the west so will the coming of the son of man be everybody's going to know it cnn fox news msnbc cbs abc everybody will know that jesus christ has come to the earth every eye will see him and behold him amen thank you mom all right Every eye will see him. Amen. It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to sneak in. And even those who have pierced him, John says, will see them, see him. And who are they? They are the Jews. It is Israel who rejected their Messiah, their own Messiah. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 prophesied that those who have pierced him, that they will behold him. They will see him. And John confirms that here in this revelation. In verse 8, Jesus declares himself to be God. He who was, who is, and is to come. Listen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty? Yes, the Almighty, says the Lord. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus said, I got it all covered. God understands, knows the end from the very beginning. But he's also the Almighty. The Greek word is Pantocrator. And it, it's, it means, it's a masculine noun, meaning omnipotent, all powerful all-powerful Jesus is declaring this about himself oh what a glorious thought that is for us Philippians 1 6 says that he who began a good work in you he is faithful to complete it amen 
We are confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you is also able to complete it. God is saying, I'm at the Alpha and and I'm at the Omega. I started a good work in you and I'm going to complete it. I know you've given up sometimes and you've doubted, but he who began a good work, I don't walk off the job halfway through. Amen. I don't walk off when you get too old and gray. Amen. He's there from the beginning all the way to the end. Aren't you glad about that? He is faithful no matter how you feel right now, no matter what you're going through. God will finish that work with in you the bible says he will present us blameless faultless and with exceeding joy before the presence of god on that day that's the work of the holy spirit that's not something we do that's something that god is able to do why because jesus christ is the almighty amen verses 9 and 10 i don't know about you this is good amen praise the lord i'm excited thank god i john verse 9 both your brother and companion And the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos. All that we've read read before is just introduction. Amen. (laughs) I was isolated on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's interesting. Right there in the text, John says, I was isolated. I'm on the island of Patmos. I'm in a place of obscurity and all this. But here's why I'm there. For the word and for the cause of Jesus Christ. That makes a difference in our lives. You're in that marriage. You're on that job. You're in that classroom. You're whatever. You are there for the cause of the word of God and for Jesus Christ, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Say, so I'm in a place of obscurity. I don't know. Hey, you're there for his purpose, for his glory. John understood that about his situation. He said, I was, verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Some people believe that could have been Saturday, that it could have been the Lord's day, which was popular, uh, was known to be the the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday. Uh, Some people think maybe it was that day, uh, or could just simply refer to the fact that it was the Lord's day because God had ordained this day to bring this revelation to John. And he said, and I heard Uh, And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Before we move on, I just want to point out here, he's a great uh, uh, example here. John says, I am your brother and companion. And then he says, not in just fair weather, but in tribulation, in kingdom, and in the patience of Christ. I love that. Boy, we need to have that attitude toward one another today in the church. That we would be a brother or a sister, a companion with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just in the, the, the good times, but in tribulation, in the kingdom of God and, and, and his kingdom, the things of God. And also in the patience of Jesus Christ. Too many times in the church, you know, we're so quick to, to shoot our wounded. When someone's going through a difficult time, we, we, we don't want to be around them or whatever. But we have a slogan around here that's more than a slogan because it's biblical. And that is that we do life together. God meant for us to be the body of Christ. To do life together. Not hide out. Not to be lone rangers. But to do life together through the good, the bad, and the ugly. Amen. And isn't that what a family's like? Amen. A family does that. I mean, I mean there's no perfect families. And you've fought with your siblings or whatever. And sometimes you fall out with each other. Each other but you're still family. Amen. That's the body of Christ. And, 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 and John here is demonstrating that, displaying this here in his life. He says, I'm your brother, your companion, not in the good times, but in tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patience of Christ. In tribulation, because he's referring to the, the persecution under the emperor Domitian. But he says, also in the patience of Christ. What does the patience of Christ look like? 
You know, Peter tells us that we are called to suffer for Christ's sake. <laughs> That's not a popular sermon title today. But Peter tells us we are called as believers to suffer for Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is our example in suffering. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23, he says, Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That is the patience of Christ. To commit myself to God's judgment, not to the judgment of others, not even the judgment of myself, but what does the Father think? Amen? He committed himself to him who judges righteously. Amen? Commit yourself to God. Because if you're trying to please everybody else, man, you are going to go crazy. You're putting unrealistic expectations upon yourself and judging yourself by those expectations. You're going to go crazy. But, oh, it's God who has judged you righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? He judges you righteously. Thank the Lord for that. Amen. Now we get into the personal revelation of Jesus Christ here in verse 11. He says, this voice behind him spoke, John says, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in, in a book and send it to the seven churches in Asia that are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned and I, to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, that is Jesus, clothed with a garment down to, to the feet and girded about the, the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice... As a sound of many waters, he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Woo! Talk about an acid trip, man. I've never been on acid, but I'm just saying. Talk about a trip, wow! I mean, imagine, he hears his voice, he turns around, Whoa! This Jesus that he said, we will see him as he is. John is now seeing him as he is glorified. I want to unpack these different descriptions here that uh, John gives us here within our text and go through them quickly. But to give us an idea, a little bit more depth of understanding and what he's seeing here. In verse 13, he says that he saw this son of man. Clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded with, uh, about his chest with a golden band or a golden sash going across his chest and his long garment. It speaks of really a priestly garment. It's, it's, the description is reflective of the garments for the priest that God, the design that God gave to Moses for the priest to wear, for Aaron and his sons back in Exodus chapter 28. The sash and the, the robe coming down uh, uh, to the feet and all of that. It speaks of a priestly garment. And why not so? Uh, and why not? Because Jesus Christ is our high priest forever. 
According to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, he is our high priest. So what John is seeing here is Christ as our high priest. And then in verse 14, it says his head and hair were like wool as white as snow. And I know some people have said, oh, you know, his hair was wool, so he must have had an afro and it was white. No, it says it was like wool. And they would wash wool in the Old Testament and to Christ's times to get wool to be white. But this white was beyond the white that they could get wool to become. It was, it was white as snow. A brilliant white. And this whiteness uh, represents the ancient of days. According to Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, the ancient of days is a reference to God Almighty. So it is, again, the reflection of Christ's deity here. Uh, within the text, his hair uh, showing uh, uh, as being as white as snow. And some scholars believe that it's not that his hair was white itself, but that it was lucent. It was brilliant. It was a, a glittering white that what John saw here, a lucent glowing uh, co- uh, whiteness that was giving off light here. And then he says his eyes were like a flame of fire. Amen. I always like to look into those eyes. His eyes like a flame of fire. It denotes his omniscience, all-knowing God. That he knows all things. You know, he didn't have blue eyes or green eyes or brown eyes. They were eyes that were like the flame, like flames of fire. In other words, you can lie to some of the people and fool some of the people some of the time, but you can never fool Jesus. When he looks at you with his eyes, he looks right through you. These eyes that are like flames of fire really speak of the penetrating nature of his divine knowledge and it describes his piercing judgment of sin. Eyes as a flame of fire. And his feet, verse 15, the first part, his feet were like fine brass. Fine brass was an emblem uh, that represented stability and permanence. Brass uh, being considered the most durable of all metallic substances and or, or compounds. And, and it was as if it was burned in a furnace. It had a bright brilliance to it. A beautiful metallic glow uh, were his feet, the feet of Jesus. And then verse uh, 15, the latter part says his voice. His voice was compared to that of the roar of rushing waters. Like being on the ocean or, or, or a huge waterfall, Niagara Fall or whatever. But it was like the rush, like rushing water to, uh, to John was the sound of it. And then his mouth, his mouth, it says a two-edged sword was coming from his mouth. Now this may be symbolic, but maybe there was a sword that John saw. But that two-edged sword, I mean, in Revelation chapter 19 also says he has a sword that that comes from his mouth. And by it, he strikes the nations. I believe it is symbolic of the word of God. And God's word, the Bible says, is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce down into the bone and very marrow of mankind's consciousness. And so it could be just speaking clearly here of his mouth, of his words, the words that he speaks. But it's interesting. It's it's a two-edged sword, like a two-edged sword uh, that he's speaking about here, like a Roman stabbing sword that the Romans would use for close quarters combat, two sharp edges on it. It's a two-edged sword, and it's indicative of the word of God, which is a two-edged sword, and that the word of God cuts you both ways. It can heal you or it can kill you. Or convict you. But it cuts. Amen. Both ways. God's word like 
is like a surgeon's knife that can heal us, but it can also be used in judgment. And then his countenance. And I want to look at verse 16 also. It talks about seven stars in his right hand. And we'll get an explanation of what the seven stars are here in a moment. But the seven stars speak of, indicate rather, sovereign possession in the right hand of Jesus Christ. His countenance, verse 16. His countenance, he says in verse 16, uh, was like the sun shining in its string, a brilliant, lucent light, like the sun shining brilliantly. Now, I, I think it's interesting here. I was thinking about this last night. And, and have you ever thought about this? And I think it's by God's design, and it's miraculous, it really is, that there is no description found anywhere of what Jesus looked like. Have you ever thought about that? We have movie stars and rock stars today, and man, we want to make pictures of them and put them on TV, and we bow down and worship them. We buy their you know, music or whatever. You know, I mean, no one took the time to say, uh, you know, he had this, he had that, he was like high cheekbones, he had this color eyes. He was no one. That to me is miraculous. That there's no record. And I think God wanted, God wanted, it, wanted it that way because if there was, we would worship the outward things rather than worship the Lord. Amen. And here we find, because, you know, historically, Jesus was from the Middle East. When the Europeans got a hold of him, they sort of Europeanized him <laughs> and gave him blonde hair and blue eyes and all that. And so then what it does is that those who are, uh, you know, who are, who are white, they began to think, oh, we must be better. Or those who have taken Jesus and made him black. Now all of a sudden we feel like, oh, now he, he's black, so I'm black, so Jesus was, must, was black, so I must be better than anybody else. You see how we do things? You see how racism, how prejudice is so evil that we even ascribe it to the Lord many times? And so the Lord in his wisdom made sure there was no description. Or Because if they ever said Jesus, I turned around and saw his countenance and he had high cheekbones. Oh, I have high cheekbones, so I must be like Jesus, you know. Or he had dark skin. I have dark skin. I must be like Jesus, you know. And, and we would worship those things. And so the Lord didn't even mention the pigmentation. Lest we divide ourselves and be worshiping the outward things rather than the Lord God himself. And here in this description, when John turns around and sees me, he says, man, all I saw was a brilliant light shining brighter than the sun. Amen. That's all God said. God said, that's all you need to know. I thank God for his wisdom in that. John said, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Which is the proper response of all flesh. Sometimes I hear people, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God, you know, I've said it sometimes. I, get, I got some questions for God. You know, I, you know you're going to fall dead. <laughs> That's the proper response for the flesh. And when the flesh encounters the glory of God, we just fall dead. Because we've got nothing to say. What are we going to boast in, in the flesh? What righteousness are we going to bring to the table so that God would somehow honor us? What argument can we bring to God that somehow God's going to go, oh, I never thought about that, Al. You got a good point there. 
No, my only proper response in my flesh, because my flesh is wicked and carnal and putrid, is to fall dead in his presence. It's for the flesh to die so that he can live through my life. Amen. John fell dead before the Lord. And everyone else will too. Every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And everyone will. People can resist all they want now, but when you see him, you're going to have to bow to his lordship. And to those who are redeemed, I love this, the Lord doesn't rebuke John, but he says to him, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, verse 17, the latter part. I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he amens his own sermon, amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. John, you don't have to worry. I'm for you. And if I'm for you, who can be against you? John, you don't have to worry. I hold the keys to the grave and to death. Uh, Don't worry. Stand up. Do not be afraid. Romans chapter 6, 22 and 23, verses 22 and 23 says, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. The wages of sin is death, but God has given, I've got the keys. He has the authority to declare life where there's been death. Only he can do that. He holds the keys. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus says to John, write a second time. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. For the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And we will get into those churches the next time. We're here today to celebrate communion. I thought, man, what a wonderful, glorious day to celebrate communion, talking about the one whom we celebrate through communion, about Jesus Christ, our Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ here in the book of Revelation is for our comfort and to give us everlasting hope, to know that it's not where we've been, but it's where we're going that really matters. That our eternity has been secured Through our faith in Jesus Christ. But before this revelation, we have seen in his first advent, his first coming, the full revelation of God's love. On an old rugged cross where he died for our sins. Whereby we have come into faith in Jesus Christ. Putting our trust in his atoning work on the cross. And in doing so, we need not live any longer in fear. These words for those who do not know Christ are fearful. But for those who are in Christ, there is no fear. John, the same John who writes the book of Revelation, tells us why. Around 70 AD, when he was writing 1 John, his first letter. After the gospel of John, he said this, that there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. 
And here's perfect love. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. Amen. Thanks for catching today's episode of Pastor Al Pittman's teaching on the CWCCS podcast. If you haven't already, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if this message hit home for you, share it with a friend. You can also support this ministry and these free teachings by visiting cwccs.org and click on Give. While you're there, you can also find the full archive of teachings from Al Pittman by clicking on the sermons link. That's cwccs.org. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is presented by Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs.